Well, good morning. I had the pleasure this last week, uh, Thursday, of going with uh, Charles and with Gil down to Malvern, and uh, we were able to visit a while with Sean Job, who uh, they baptized uh, just a few weeks before that. And uh, Sean came to uh, their acquaintance through uh, not only our Bible correspondence course, but also by our visitation at uh, Cummins Prison when we go down there uh, once a quarter and do worship service. And so we were able to go down to Malvern and, and see the chapel that some of the brethren from uh, Sylvan Hills are, are helping uh, build and furnish and got to visit with them and, and listen to how they are infiltrating the prison with the gospel. And uh, we're going to have more information coming, I think, of how we're going to be able to plug into that and have more opportunities uh, with these, uh, these men in uh, the prison there. One of the things that we were talking about in just our conversation, he talked about the encouragement that he got, specifically from, from Gil. He and Gil have a, a mentorship uh, relationship. And so he talked about the encouragement that he got from Gil and from uh, being able to correspond with him. And he also talked about how there are so many who are curious, who have questions about faith and about Jesus and about the Bible. He said, but it's really hard because they have no encouragement. He says he'll, he'll, he gets letters and he gets correspondence. But he says some of these guys never get anything. And he talked about how important it is for them to be encouraged in their faith seeking. And so I bring that to you this morning because I want to challenge us to be encouragers of these men in the prison. And so if you will talk to Gil or to Charles, we can get you a name of somebody that you can write to and encourage. We'll run everything through the church. You can use the postage here. You can use the envelopes here. But these men are dying, not just physically locked away, but spiritually. And they're hungry for hope. And we are people of hope. They are paying consequences for actions, that they, choices that they made. But we have a message of hope beyond those consequences. We have a message of eternal consequences. And all it would take is just a note of encouragement. So I ask you to search your heart. And how can you be an encourager of one of these men? And talk to Gil and talk to Charles about how you can write a note and get it sent to them. And, and just be that voice of hope, that message of hope to someone who is seeking Hope. You know, I grew up in the church, as many of you did, and singing was always an important part of, of being together, our times of worship, an important part of faith shaping as church when we come together. And so at a young age, I was drawn to the melody of songs. You know, initially, I liked the way they sounded. I didn't understand at young age what a lot of the words meant. Uh, but I was drawn to the, to the melody. I was drawn to the rhythm of the music itself. And so as I matured, I began to think about and understand the meaning of these songs. And so songs began to teach me about Jesus. And they taught me about God. And they taught me about creation. And they taught me about life and faith. And I came to realize that there's some tension in the songs that we sing. 
For instance, we would sing a song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And then the very next song, we would sing, This is my father's world. And so you try to... Ra- that's weird. I mean, it's, it seems like there's, there's conflict there, right? This world is not my home, but this is my father's world. So what is that all about? It's confusing. And so these, these hymns embody two common, seemingly contradictory Christian responses to living by faith in the middle of a very unchristian culture. And so one seems to embody this notion that the Christian should have little to do with this wasteland of godlessness. We should just completely remove ourselves from it. And the other regards cultural transformation, just a full-bore, transformed culture, as virtually identical to kingdom activity. And so there's this tension in these two songs because they both point out biblical truths, biblical realities in this life. And this tension is not something that we should try to relieve but something we must embrace. And so how do we do that? Well, one person identified two extremes that Christians go to in order to kind of massage this tension that's created by this, this this tension in our discipleship. And so on the one hand, you have someone who takes a standalone posture against culture. And too often that can become some moral superiority. We're better than you, morally. So we kind of get this standoffish and stand-above-ish Uh, kind of air about us if we're not careful. And Christians circle the wagons. And so on the other extreme, transforming culture on its own can degenerate into this naive idealism. We can make everything in this world just like heaven. And so when you look at the life of Jesus, you don't see extremism. What you see is antagonism and affirmation. There's this balance in the life of Jesus. And so he had the condemnation of the self-righteous Pharisees, but then he had the welcoming of the poor, the welcoming of the the brokenhearted, the the, the healing of the crippled. And so there's this arguing and embracing. And we're in Hebrews chapter 11, and so our passage today calls us to embrace this tension, to not run away from it, to not try to hide from it, to not fight it, but to somehow work through it, this living by faith in Jesus, walking through the world in route to a world that is to come. And so beginning in verse 13, chapter 11, we have this kind of summary of all that's come before. Everything we've been looking at these last few weeks here, these stories of faith that we've looked at. And so Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13 begins, these all died, the ones we were talking about, specifically Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. But these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. And I like the word pilgrim that the King James uses here. I don't like the word exile because in in, in our culture today it brings this imagery that has in negative connotation in some trains of thought, in political circles, and especially our news when you think about exile. But it's like being stranded, being abandoned. It's not the right picture here. And so the message uses the word transient. And it's a temporary condition, but even that can kind of give some distortion to what Scripture is pointing to here. Those who see the lives on earth as brief visits are tourists. We've got to be careful 
Because if I just see, I'm just trying to get from this life to the next. If my goal is just that how, how few steps can I take to get to my eternal home, then we can become a tourist. And we know what a tourist is. But those who require more than one lifetime to build this life God has given us, seeking a kingdom of God, those folks are pilgrims. And so which are you? Are you a tourist in this life? Or are you a pilgrim in this life? Tourists are taking some time off. And pilgrims are starting a new life. So when you travel as a tourist, the idea is to you take some time off from your busy, hectic life and you return to the same busy, hectic life. But you're refreshed, but basically unchanged, right? We talk about, I need a vacation from my vacation when we get back home. And so we're right back into all the hustle and bustle and craziness of life that we just took a momentary vacation from. That's a tourist. When you travel as a pilgrim, you're seeking an entirely new life. Completely new life. And so we read in verse 9 there, By faith, He made His home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. So if we're truly living as pilgrims, then we should be about as attached to the way that we're currently living as though we're living in tents. As though this land isn't yet what God promised to make of it. And so it seems ironic to say that you're just a pilgrim passing through as a means of justifying a very comfortable life in which you feel completely settled in and see no need to change anything. So we come here and we sing, I'm, I'm, I'm just a passing through, but I love, I'm settling in. So, what, which is, it cannot be both. So, several of you have traveled with a group. You've done some group travel, buses and boats and whatever. When you travel with a tourist group, your hope, if you're honest with yourself, your hope is to stay as pleasant as possible and to hope everybody you're traveling with stays as pleasant as possible. Let's get through this without any conflict. Let's just all mind our business and keep moving along. And you can make small talk with the folks that you're with, and, but you're going to try your hardest to avoid saying anything that could possibly result in some ongoing conflict if you're touring with a group. You don't want to make the trip unpleasant. And this is the way a lot of people approach church. And so, when you think about it, we need to be intentional about creating spaces for discipleship, room for discipleship, room to grow in our faith walk, our life in Christ, in which true pilgrimage can, can happen. And so we need a space where we can be vulnerable enough with our traveling companions that we can truly be brothers and sisters that Christ has called us to be. And so young people aren't walking away from God. You can read what you want. The bottom line is they're not walking away from God. They're walking towards deeper relationships. They're walking towards mentoring. And they will pitch their tent when and where they find it. And it may not be in the church. And so, as a pilgrim, we see a gathering of Christians. We see it as a congregation, as a place to be, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, where we can practice the truth in love. And grow up in, into Christ in all things who is the head. From Him the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. But when you're a tourist, you pay somebody else to carry your luggage, right? In a church environment, what tourists put in the offering plate is payment for service. 
And so heartwarming songs, inspiring messages, these, they offer this brief one-hour vacation from the craziness of life. And so to be a pilgrim, though, means that you consolidate resources with other pilgrims and you share the responsibility of that journey. And so one person carries the tent, another person carries the cooking supplies, somebody else the food... And in the same way, pilgrims offer their income to God, not as a tax, not as a a tip for services, for great singing or great preaching, but in order to say that that percentage of their wealth belongs to the community at large. And it's used, overseen, by those God has appointed to make sure that the community at large is living out the kingdom of God. And we absolutely do not cease being a part of the community with which we share our wealth after we share it. So if we give money without participating in the ministries that are funded by the money, then we are tourists. And we are not pilgrims. So these all died in faith without receiving the promise. But they saw them in the distance and welcomed them and acknowledged they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. And this identity creates tension. And we can feel it. Tension in our discipleship and tension in our approach to relating to God and walking with God, tension in our relationship with one another and walking together side by side with one another. And Abraham would acknowledge that because of God's call on his life, calling him away from his homeland and his obedience by faith, that he was now a stranger in a foreign land. He left everything that he was comfortable with, everything that he knew, and he embarked based on this call from God, a pilgrim on a journey, putting down roots in this true home country that he's heading towards, that God is leading him towards. And so this is fundamental to our identity as Christians. This is who we are, who we should be. And this is a life where we're uprooted from one system of living, one system of thinking, and we're replanted in a new system of living, in a new system of thinking. And so Jesus would say to his disciples who would follow him, and those who would follow him would find their lives uprooted and replanted in this kingdom He would say to those who may be wavering on this commitment that faith demands in Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so he's speaking this in an agricultural society, obviously. You can't put your hand to the plow and set out to plow this field while looking backwards. Where are you going to end up? Let's put it in our context. My papa used to change lanes like this. <laughs> you know, as, as he turned to look for cars, the, the vehicle... You can't... You've got to keep your eyes where you're going. You cannot look backwards once you set out. Or you will not get where you're going. And so this language is echoed by the writers of Hebrews here in our text today. For those who speak in such a way... Make it clear they're seeking a homeland. They're not looking back. They're looking forward to where they have been called to. In fact, if they had been thinking of that land that they left, they could have gone back. God is not forcing us into a life of faith, into a life of discipleship. He's calling us. He's urging us there. But if they had been looking backwards, they they would not have moved forwards. And so they would not have acknowledged their existence as strangers having been called by grace into this kingdom of God. And so people traveling with Abraham, his own family, they did look back. We know this story from the Old Testament. And as a result, they died in faithlessness. 
And so his family was growing. They needed to spread out a little bit. And so he, he got with his nephew Lot and, and gave him first dibs on land. And Lot set out and, and went to the land of Sodom. And so you don't have to know much about the Bible to recognize there's darkness embedded in the word Sodom. And that's tied, our modern use of the word is tied to the wickedness of this city of Sodom. And so as God set out to destroy this city, He told Abraham and He told Lot and their family, you leave running and don't you look back. You take off where I'm leading you to and don't you look back. Go forward towards the promise of God. And that promise is deliverance. And so as they're making their way, Lot's wife looked back and her fate became the fate of the city of Sodom. This is Genesis 19 if you want to go back and review. And so why did she look back? Why would God said go and don't look back? Why did she look back? I don't know. Why do we look back? Why do we do it? Maybe it was regretful longing. Maybe the longing of maybe I don't want to give up everything that I've left behind right now. Maybe what I know as destructive as life as it may be, at least it's what I know. And I'm scared about what I don't know. Maybe that's why. Jesus tells us that when you embark on a journey of faith, you must not look back. He knows what the draw is. He knows the the, the wrestling, the fighting between the flesh and the Spirit. So just remember Lot's wife, Jesus would say. In Luke 17.32, remember Lot's wife. And we have an exclamation point in the original text. They didn't write with punctuation, but it was written in a way to make this emphatic. Jesus is like, remember, remember. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. And so that's what it looks like when our old way of thinking and living is uprooted and it's replanted in a new way of thinking, a new way of living in the promised reality of God's eternity. Or how about 1 John 2, verse 15 we read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all that is in the world, that's the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the arrogance produced by material possessions, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, but all its desires with it. But the person who does the will of God remains forever. Do not love the world. I love ice cream. (laughs) I love the beach. I love lazy summer days. I love just fall camping. I love air conditioning, especially this time of the year. I love movies. And I love my truck. And the list can go on and on and on. And brethren, that's not a bad list. There is nothing bad about the list. I enjoy living this life. But, if my affections are rooted, if they are dug in so deep in this world, in this life, rather than the eternal world to come, if my affections, what I love so much, is sustained by what happens in this world, then as this world disintegrates, as it deteriorates, so will I. And so will my faith. And so this world is not capable of sustaining your affections. It's not capable of carrying them through to a happy ending. So Jesus calls us. You've got to uproot those desires. Uproot and replant in something that lasts. 
And this world is passing away with all of its desires. Everything that we love about it is fading away. Slowly, maybe quickly in some sense, but surely. But the person who does the will of God remains forever. So you attach your desires to that which cannot be shaken or taken. And that is Christ and His kingdom. So a disciple of Christ says, I'm banking my hope, my future. I'm seeking my satisfaction in Jesus and His kingdom. And so if you and I embrace this fact, then it means that we're going to acknowledge the world as we know it is not our home. We are truly passing through. And as good as this world may be at times, we are living towards a better world. But as it is... They aspire to a better land. That is a heavenly one. So they desire a far better country. And that's where they have rooted their affections. Have you? Have I? And get this. It says, Therefore, because of this, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. And I love that word city. And anywhere in Scripture you come across this, this word city of God, this phrase city of God, this idea city of God, it's essentially God is preparing a new society of people. A new people, a new world, not characterized by all the things that make this life miserable. A new civilization for His people to enjoy with Him forever prepared for those who are living by faith in Jesus. And so there's no sickness, no suffering. No emotional or physical pain. No sin. No death. There is no Satan. And a place marked by righteousness and holiness and purity. And there's a place where through the residence of God's glory is going to fill the population. So this is the homeland. This, this is the homeland. This better land. A place not prepared with human hands. This is the city that God is preparing for us. And this is why we can embrace the reality that the world we live in today is not our home. We're moving forward towards a far bigger, better homeland. So as the tension that exists is highlighted just a few chapters over here in Hebrews, Scripture suggests the city is a present reality. And so, okay, is it future? Is it yet to come? Or or is it present? Is it now? Look at chapter 12 and verse 22. He writes, but you have come. He's talking to the same people. He's talking to us. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, so hang on a second. This is present tense here he's writing. So am I going or have I come? Is this something we're longing for or something we're enjoying right now? And the answer is yes. It's yes. It's this idea of already but not yet. There's a sense of it that we can take part of now. We can take hold of now. But the fullness of it is yet to come. And so this is the tension that we're called to live with. And these are aspects of this city that you and I can enjoy and engage in today. But we know there's a whole lot more to enjoy. So when you go back to our verse in chapter 11, I want you to get the sense of this description of disciples as pilgrims. And understand, it does not mean that they're tourists or visitors in this life that we're living, but that your identity is not tied up, it's not bound up, it's not attached to this present reality. 
And so our status is not unlike what the people of Israel experienced when they were sent into exile. So you had the foreign kings who captured them and then wanted them to assimilate into their culture. And yet the people of God wanted to stay faithful to God and to their culture, their homeland. And so they're thinking it it, it doesn't look like we're ever going to get back to that land, to that place, to our home. And so the Lord sends a word to them. He sends a word to them about how they're going to go about their days in a land that was not their home. And so in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 5, through the prophet, listen to this, 21st century Christians. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and allow your daughters to get married so that they too can have sons and daughters. Grow in number. Do not dwindle away. I would never bring a child into this world, as terrible as it is. As much craziness as there is, this world is just going straight downhill. Why would anybody want to bring a child into this world? Because the Lord God encourages us to do what we can to be a part of this world and to make a mark on this world. Not a visitor and not a tourist. But get this, he says don't assimilate, but also don't isolate. Don't assimilate, but don't isolate. Do life in this world and in this time that you're in. But then he goes on in verse 7. He says, work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it, for as it prospers, you will prosper. So he says, you live your life in this land that is not your permanent dwelling. But you live it in such a way that you are a blessing to the people around you. And so Babylon is not my home. (laughs) But as long as I'm here, I'm going to live to bless those around me. I'm going to seek the welfare of of my city. And I will do something, anything to remain faithful to my God and be productive as a resident in this temporary land. And so this is, this is the tension. This is the tension we feel. And we can find ourselves declaring our status not as resident aliens, but as residents. So we've got to be careful there too. Am I a resident alien? Or have I found myself as a resident? When we blend in so much with the surrounding culture, there becomes nothing distinct about our life in Jesus Christ, then we need to look at rezoning. (laughs) You no longer express the difference that Jesus has made in your life because you're blending in so well with the surrounding culture. And so you're no longer a peculiar people. And when the church becomes full of residents, then we begin to reflect the same values and methods of living with one another as those outside the church do. So we begin to remove anything in any way in our lives that might appear strange to the people in the world and and we're living in. Which are in fact the very things that set us apart for the glory of God. So then others live their lives as transient and utterly irrelevant way. Irrelevant, known more by, by what they're against than what they're for. And so they lead with the negative rather than the positive. They may be speaking truth, but they're detached from the compassion and the empathy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so their life brings no blessing to the city in which we live. But as it is, we need to aspire to a better land. That is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God will not be ashamed to be called our God and for us to call Him our God because He's prepared a place for us. Right? <laughs> right? We aspire to a better land and God is not ashamed to be called our God? Is that how it is? Is that how we are? If not, why not? If not, why not? Jesus tells His disciples, look guys, you're going to be a city set on a hill. You're, you're going to form a new society in this world following Me and following My lead. And as a new society in the world who's embodying and expressing the ethics of Jesus' kingdom, we are showcasing to the world what it looks like in the kingdom of God. And we will give them an imperfect, yet a future glimpse of what that kingdom looks like. And so there's a sense in which the church at Summers Avenue should showcase to central Arkansas what life will be like one day. What eternal life is going to look like. Just a glimpse. And that is to confront injustice in the world. We care for orphans. And so we collect for them. We pray for them. We minister to them. And we care for widows. And we minister to them. And we care for the homeless. And we do things to reach out to them and minister to them. And we care for the brokenhearted. Especially those who are in prison. It's a taste of what is to come. And it's also why we take sin seriously. And why we extend grace generously. We're living as a stranger, as a foreigner, as a resident alien, as a pilgrim. And in the church, we want to be a counter-culture, not a combative culture. And not a conceding culture. Can you hear the difference? So we're marked by a new ethic, a new king, a new reality moving towards this world that is to come. And so as long as we are here, we're going to bless and we're going to bless and we're going to bless. But in order to do this, you have to commit yourself to embrace this tension of grace and truth. See, everyone wants grace. But fewer want to embrace the truth. And so living by faith in the promises of God, which are entwined in His commandments, puts us at odds with others. It does, and it will. But it will also put you in a position to bless them. And so living by faith is committing to God this, for Him to have the resolution for this tension that we're living in, because we cannot resolve it. You cannot resolve this tension. I cannot resolve this tension. And through faith in God's promise of Jesus, we have a resolution. Scripture says these all died in faith without receiving the things promised. But they saw them in the distance and welcomed them and acknowledged that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For those who speak in such a way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. In fact, if they had been thinking of that land that they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they aspire to a better land that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So this morning, I ask you, what land are you thinking of? What destination is on your mind? Because here's the deal. The, the answer to that question lies in your actions. It lies in your method of living. It lies in your lifestyle. What land are you thinking of? You can tell by the way you live. Are you living by faith? That's how God calls us today. To live by faith and not by sight. 
acknowledging the fact that there is tension in that. Tension that we must wrestle with for the rest of this mortal life. But tension that God has already resolved in Jesus Christ. And that's what we keep our eyes set on. It's the already, but it's the not yet. And so we come together and we strengthen one another and we build each other up. We encourage one another by our presence and by our words, by our hymns, by our prayers. Because we're already there. But not quite, right? So this morning, what's your mind set on? How are you living? Are you living by faith? You know, when we live by sight and not by faith, that's when sin creeps in because sin is now. Sin is the pleasure today. I'm going to satisfy now. And that's what sin does. It gets a hold of us. And God calls you to repent of that. To not look back, but look forward towards the Author and the Perfector of our faith. Jesus Christ. God calls you to repent. If you confess that sin, ask His forgiveness. He will forgive. Perhaps you've been looking back and God has called you to turn your head forward and see the fact that Jesus Christ is His Son who came to this earth, put on this human flesh, who wrestled with this tension that we wrestle with, yet without sin was able to go to the cross for us, died there, was buried in a tomb, and God raised Him after three days to take seat on His eternal throne so that He could be the payment for our sins. So that when we put our faith in Him, and we are baptized into Christ and have our sins washed, then we can enjoy that eternal home with Him. So this morning, I ask you, how are you living? Are you living by faith? And if not, Will you do so today? And if we can help you in any way, we're going to stand and sing a song. Will you come?